Hello, mainstreamers and cinephiles and everybody in between. I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. And Operation Silver Screen is a go. Hello, welcome to Operation Silver Screen, the cinematic operation created to tackle Bryant and my backlog of must-see films through the ages. Today's episode is going to be a little different than our typical Tuesday brief. You thought award season was over, with Oscars having just wrapped on Sunday, but you're wrong, because here at Operation Silver Screen, we're rolling out the red carpet, and we're ready to present our own best films of 2022. Uh, first off, Caitlin, uh, the red carpet, we won't be able to roll out. Actually, I talked to HQ, somebody signed it out, and uh, I don't know, just got lost in paperwork. We can't find it right now. Dang it! It's not in the proper storage closet. See, this is what happens when you lack accountability. <sighs> Do we have the Golden Magnifier Awards? The Golden Magnifier Awards? Uh, yes. Yes, we do. We did get those ordered. We got to give something to our winners. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we got to write off something on tax season. <laughs> now, as a note, these views are, of course, are subjective. All right. You're going to disagree with us. We're going to, and I know because we're going to disagree with each other. If we're disagreeing with each other, you're going to disagree with us as well, but that's all part of it. So why would you want to watch this show, you know, compared to all the other war seasons? Well, Caitlin and I, we're kind of, you probably noticed from the show, we're like middle ground. We're sort of, you know, pretentious film snobs, but at the same time, there's plenty of movies that we love that the mainstream audience love with us. And even sometimes mainstream audience, nobody may like it and we may still find some joy in it. So it's a little bit more unpredictable. Unlike the Oscars, like we can already guess half of the wins that are going to be there. So if you feel that there was something also that we missed or you just really disagree on, uh, I'm not asking you know to, to go in and like completely fight his hands swinging, but hit us up on our social media, which we'll give you at the end of the episode. Love to hear what you guys thought of last year. And also in comparison to the award seasons that you usually see the shows and the presentations uh, we're going to be mixing it up a little bit as well. It's not just the best of this, uh, the best of the technical awards. We're going to be talking about the franchise inclusions, what we were disappointed in, what we were surprised about. Uh, this was a big year in horror. We're going to have some categories in that. Uh, we're going to talk about just the emotions that we felt throughout the years with films that made us cry, angry, or made us laugh. And we're going to begin the show by talking about what we thought of the year as a whole. And Caitlin, what... Did you, what was your overall thought of this year? I know last year we disagreed. You thought last year was a great year. I did not. And I think based on our offline discussions, we're going to disagree once again. Yeah, I think we are. And just as a disclaimer before we get going, I am sick. Uh, I wasn't here last episode, as some of you might know. Uh, I was away. And while I was away, I just picked up some sort of virus. So if I sound a little bit uh, nasally, uh, yeah, that's why. I'm not feeling too well right now. I'm doing my best, though. I'm giving my best. And this is why I'm glad we do remote recordings. Yeah, I'm well medicated, though. I got my inhaler next to me. I got tissues. I'm ready. <laughs> I also saw you got some tea there, too. Yeah, I got some tea, the hot tea. It's uh, lemon and honey, lemon, blackberry, elderberry, whatever. All that good stuff for when you're sick, so I'm ready. Ooh. Well, if there's any tea sponsors out there, let us know. You know, we'll give a shout out to your brand. Don't say anything now. Yeah. They're not paying us to say anything, Caitlin. Okay. Keep that to myself for the time being. But yeah, so this year was an interesting year. Like you said, I really liked last year in film. Last year, we didn't get a whole lot of films. We were still recovering from the pandemic era where we weren't having a lot of films being 
released, not a lot of films created. So there weren't a heavy extent of films coming out, but the ones that came out, I really did enjoy. And for this year, there was definitely a lot more good and decent films to choose from instead of last year. I think that uh, there are a lot more films that I enjoyed as a whole, and there was a lot more films to choose from, like I said. But as far as like my ratings for films, my ratings were lower this year. This year was largely a year of disappointments for me personally. There weren't a lot of films that I loved to the level that I loved last year. And I was looking at my letterbox and looking at the stars and stuff that I awarded. And I had a lot more five and four and a half star rated films last year, which for me is the mark of a, a really good film that I really love. Whereas this year, there was a, a couple fours. There is a lot of three and a halves. A lot, a lot of three and a halves, which is like, I enjoy it, but it's kind of middle of the road. It's nothing that spectacular. It might not stick with me as long. So, I mean, I can't say that this was an altogether bad year in film, but it wasn't the best for me. I would say since the production of Man on the Moon, this has been the best year in film ever. Really? <laughs> no, no. Wait, it wasn't Man on the Moon. Uh, a Trip to the Moon. Yeah, I was like, what's Man yeah. on the Moon? First of all, you meant First Man. Well, I'm like, I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Man on the Moon was, I mean, to some people, it's uh, it's a fictional film. And I thought you were making a Moonfall joke. Oh, yeah, that Ooh. came out last year. Is that going to be on any of our lists? Yeah, I say. Ooh, we'll see. I did see it. <laughs> yeah, you did see that. Last year, 2021, I, was, I wasn't I was a fan of. There, there weren't that many... There just weren't that many choices to begin with. My top five was actually honestly a struggle. It was only like my first two that were really concrete and that I was going to you know hold on to for, for the years to come. But this year, I mean, to put it in, to put it in an example, I struggled with my top five. And I, I honestly, I could have done a top 10 easily with this year. I do think this year had a lot of disappointments, but I think this year also made a lot of promises and I think it evened out all right. I think, you know, they threw a lot of stuff at the wall and a lot of things fell, but a lot of things stuck and more things stuck than they did last year. So it doesn't sound like we're too off base from one another. I mean, we agree that there's more variety here, but would you, uh, do you think that you had a lot of like highly rated films this year? Like ones yes. that are going to stick with you throughout time? Yes, my top five this year, I would say... The top three, maybe the top four, were to be above my number three film from last year. Okay. Or no, above my um, yeah, above my number three film from last year, and I think my top three films would be above my second, between my first and second film of last year. Now you're just confusing me. <laughs> yeah. So my my top three films, they're better than Belfast, but they're not better than Worst Person in the World. Yeah, I haven't taken the time to really, like, think of it in that perspective, but I know that most of my top five, like I said, they were five stars, four and a half stars. Uh, I do have some four stars in my top five this year, so uh, we'll go over that. But in general, as far as, like, how I rated things, I definitely rated this year a lot lower. Like I said, there was a lot of middle-of-the-ground movies for me this year. I'm surprised to hear you say three and a half is your middle ground. Three stars is my middle ground. Three and a half means I, I liked it. Uh, there were like there was something I don't know. I start off all my ratings at three stars, and then I take and give as the movie progresses and it concludes. So three is like it's the baseline. 
Gotcha. See, for me on Letterboxd, three and a half means I enjoyed it or I found something in it that I enjoyed. Three is like completely straight up mediocre. So it it is a little tiny bit above mediocre in that, I mean, I don't know. Three and three and a half are both mediocre categories for me, but three and a half means I enjoyed something. Three means I didn't really enjoy it, but I can recognize it's mediocre. That makes sense. Okay. That was so your three stars basically my two and a half. Okay, gotcha. Another thing that I want to say is I think the writing showed. I, I think writers showed how important they are in a film, and I don't mean that in just dialogue, but in mm-hmm. story structure as well. That that's true. I think it was both the strength and the weakness of a lot of films, and we're gonna. I'm gonna talk about it just through throughout this, but I mean dialogue, comedy. Uh, story structure, the balance between themes and the story themselves. all Pretty much all these films, I'm going to be talking about the writing within them and the audacity some of the films had when it came to their <laughs> writing as well. I use that I use that phrase a couple times, uh, mostly in our legacy sequels of last year, which is something that we explored more. There were films that we saw that we wouldn't usually see if not for mm-hmm. this show. Definitely. So you guys are welcome, because I suffered quite a bit last year. (laughs) There was some suffering. I think as far as accessibility goes for films, it's hard for me to say whether it was better or worse than last year, because I remember that was something I talked about, that like a lot of films were more accessible because we were streaming more. We had a more on-demand. We had a lot of foreign films that were coming uh, through Netflix in particular, Netflix is really great when it comes to foreign foreign properties. And I think it was about the same, maybe a little bit less, but it's kind of hard to tell because like you said, we had so many movies coming out this year. Largely, we did see the return to theater. We definitely saw more theater-only releases, and many were, of course, reduced to limited screenings in major theaters, with the exception of one film that really broke the rules for every film of its kind, and that's Everything Everywhere All at Once, which, you know, made headlines for the amount of screenings it had that returned to theaters and all the success that it had. And then we also had, of course, amazing successes for horror in theaters as well with films like Barbarian and The Terrifier 2 that did just absolutely amazing in theaters. So that's something that uh, will be interesting to see how that continues on to the next year. Yes, and I'll, I'll get to horror in a second. Definitely got to talk about horror. I, as far as the accessibility, it's, it's hard for me to say because the theater that I go to has a lot of these films. Yeah, I'm still I'm still jealous. <laughs> yeah, so I, I was seeing a lot of these films in theater. But yeah, I know for you, it's it's different. And then, you know, for a lot mm-hmm. of people, it's, it's different whether they can get to the theater or uh, some people still don't feel safe in the theater. Mm-hmm. It's, it's weird though. I saw a scream. I'm not going to say too much. I saw scream six. Uh, we're going to do, we're going to record the episode tomorrow. Uh, and that's going to be coming out, but they did, they continue to do the thing of thank you for coming to the theater as mm-hmm. if like, I feel like that's, they put in the same energy for that. Thank you. As they do for supporting the troops. Yeah, they do. I, I, I feel like <laughs> I'm commended weird. for coming to the theater. It's not that big of a deal anymore. <laughs> Also, you say, like, if I get COVID, you're going to visit me on my hospital bed. You're like, you know what? I know the sacrifice that you made. And we, <laughs> as a studios, appreciate it. I think I might have. There's a possibility that when I got COVID, it was actually in the theaters. <laughs> well, you know what, Caitlin? You are a soldier and you are respected. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. 
I can just see like like you know how the, the they have those commercials where they just keep going from one person to the other, <laughs> and it, it's like it's somebody just going, "I'm a soldier. I'm a troop. I'm a theater oh goer. I'm a fireman." <laughs> Respect our heroes. Oh, yeah. Now, you mentioned horror. I think everybody saw how great horror was. Even if you weren't really paying attention to it, horror was fantastic. We even have a category for this year in which we're going to talk about the scariest horror movie for us and the worst horror movie. I didn't put in the best because I think the best is going to show up in our list anyway. So we're going to talk about the worst and the scariest. And I think there was just there was a variety of these horror films as well. We got all different types and we got on different levels of production as well. And good horror, good horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something that, you know, obviously we're big horror fans. We've tackled a lot of horror movies on our show, probably more than any other genre at this point. And it's it was just very glad to see because a lot of times you're struggling. You're really struggling to find good horror. And, you know, this year, not all of them were good, of course, but you had options. You had a lot of options. And some of that was legacy horror, too. A lot of that, because we did have Scream at the beginning of the year. We had Prey. We had Hellraiser. So at Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So there was a lot of ones that we, we also covered on this on this podcast for our bonus objectives. Yes, and they were all streaming, too, when you talked about accessibility. Yeah. Uh, well, Scream took a little bit, but not too long. And I think that there's more I want to say about the franchise, but I'm going to hold it for our Scream talk as well, as far as like the legacy sequels. But yeah, horror movies, I, I talk about, we usually get one to two uh, two or three good horror movies. And this year we probably got like four or five solid ones. Uh, comedy 2, I think was, mm-hmm. was good this year. I got some laughs in. Uh, I got some surprises from films as well. I, yeah, I overall, I think this was a fantastic year. Yeah, I still don't fully dis- I still don't fully agree with you there. And but there were a couple trends for me that really stood out. Two in particular. One big trend I saw was the what I call the rich people doing things trend. There was a lot of satires on just the rich in general. We saw that with the menu, Triangle of Sadness, Glass Onion, and of course not in movie world, but in television world we had White Lotus series. And they all kind of tackled the same thing and uh, for me, with varying uh, successes there, there were some of those that I liked, some of them I didn't like, some that I wish did more. Uh, was this a trend that you noticed, or do you have any thoughts on this trend? Oh, I definitely noticed it. They even had a movie this year, Infinity Pool uh, 2023, that, that came out right at the beginning. Like, they missed their shot to be part of the oh. whole the year of making fun of rich people. But yeah, that, yeah, that was kind of weird, too. I don't know where that spark came from. I mean, I guess you can say White Lotus was the first to do it with the first season. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't know Infinity Pool was like that. Uh, it kind of disappointed me a little bit because I've been excited to watch Infinity Pool, but I've been trying to stay pretty blind with it. So now hearing that that's another rich people satire, whatever, it's it's a little disappointing. Yeah, I, or at least that's what I the impression I got from it, what I read on it. Okay. Devin saw it, but I didn't see. Uh, he didn't speak of that part too much. He spoke of some other things, and I won't say what to. Okay. You say you want to go in blind, so I won't. Mm-hmm. Won't say anything. <laughs> Thank you. Another big trend I noticed this year was the director self inserts. Uh, we had a lot of those this year. The biggest one, of course, being The Fablemans, which is Steven Spielberg's self-insert story. We also had Bardo from Alex- Alejandro Inarritu. 
Uh, Cha-Cha Real Smooth was a little bit of a director self-insert with the director actually starring in it. Uh, the novelist film is a, uh, I can't remember if it's Korean, Japanese film, but I saw that definitely had a bit of a self-insert type of story. So there was a lot of them. There was a lot of them that I saw this year that were either directly or indirectly a bit of a self-insert story from the director. And once again, this is something that, you know, it really varied for me. Sometimes it was good, sometimes it works, and sometimes it didn't. Sometimes it felt self-indulgent, I hear a lot of people saying. Yes, and I'm I'm so sorry. I I knew I was forgetting something. I didn't see Bardo before this episode. I'll, I'm still going to watch it. Right. <laughs> I'll most likely, I got to see if there's anything coming out in theaters next week, but I'll most likely see that for my Thursday watch. And yeah. I'll, oh, go ahead. I was planning on watching, of ones that I missed, I was planning on watching The Whale before this episode, uh, but then I did, just didn't get the time or chance to with being sick, and, and there was other movies that, like, Return to Soul that I really, really wanted to watch, but it just wasn't available to watch for me. Yeah, it, it was on my list for, like, ever, and then these last couple of days, I was knocking out movies. I mean, I watched Two Leslie yesterday, I watched Causeway today, and I just... I was thinking too. I was like, I feel like I'm missing something. Yep, mm-hmm. it was it was Bardo. So my bad. I know you you were talking about that film. And you were you were getting me to to watch it. I definitely plan to watch it. There's, it's not because I didn't want to watch it. I honestly just forgot. Yeah, it is a long one too. I think that's the thing too. I was like trying to plan with it, and I was also trying to put some like kind of variation into my watches, making sure that I wasn't watching the same tone and themes consecutively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As far as it being self-indulgent and self-insertive, one thing I think about with it is that it pretty much, they they are autobiographies and they're no more self-indulgent than a regular autobiography. Mm. But because we just haven't seen autobiographies done in film, we only see biographies. We see people, admirers take that film or they get assigned to it and they make that film about that person. But in writing, autobiography is a is a large genre, and I never heard the words really self-indulgent with that. So I wonder if they are really self-indulgent or if it's, you know, it's just it's not common to see on film or people think that you're taking an extra step. Because, I mean, if Steven Spielberg wrote an autobiography that, that was this movie, would people still call it self-indulgent? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that's a word that I particularly would put to describe it uh it's just one but i've seen a lot of particularly with uh bardo and for me there's of course some conversation about when we use that word versus when we don't and we'll get into that a little bit later but yeah it's been interesting that this was a big theme for me this year this isn't something new i mean we had uh one that's continuously brought up i think is eight and a half which i didn't realize was a director story but it's one that we have on our to watch for our for shame list um one that we'll probably get to at some point in time so it, it's nothing new but it definitely was a trend that i saw this year was there any other trends that you noticed this year other than donkey deaths <laughs> oh yeah we did get a lot of donkey deaths we yeah did. i didn't get to watch uh eo i didn't have time for that i did watch eo you did yeah but actually going back to what you said about the, the self-indulgent if they are i didn't actually finish the fablements and I haven't seen Morrow, so I really can't talk too much about the subject. But if they're making a story about how they became the best director, that I can see like self-indulgence with. But at least far as 
I think I got like 30, 45 minutes in the Fablemans, and I wasn't getting that feeling. It was just talking about mm-hmm. his childhood. Yeah, correct. Now let's go ahead and get into our awards. What we're going to go ahead and do is we're going to give you our top five. We're going to give you one of the films, and then we're going to talk about some subcategories, and then we're going to go into our next film. And we're going to kick it off with number five, your favorite film of the year, your best picture winner. For me, my number five film of the year was Barbarian from director Zach Krager. This is my probably my bigger horror film that I'm going to have in my top five. Perhaps <laughs> we'll see. But this was a film that, you know, was pretty low key in the theaters. I know that I heard some good things. I know you saw it before I did. And so I, I had gone in with some pretty decent expectations. Um, not super high just because, like I said, with horror, I don't think my expectations are usually middle of the road for horror unless it's a director that I just really love. And this obviously was a director that I wasn't really aware of. Uh, I knew the basic plot. I knew it had to do with an Airbnb. But in general, I went in pretty blind to this, and I think that is the way to do it. And I've actually gotten into some arguments with people about this movie. Uh, I've talked to people who just did not like this movie. They thought it was ridiculous, over the top. And I think there is a little bit of that in this film, but I think it just enhances the film overall. Uh, I think this film did things better and tackled themes better that other films from this year tried to but did not properly succeed which is uh men being one of them men from alex garland and it just took so much themes i like i I don't want to spoil any of it because if you haven't seen that i want you to go in pretty blind it took themes that that movie tried to take and it just it just excelled with it and it's ridiculous it's terrifying it's everything that i would want in a horror movie and it's just a wild ride i think that's the best way i can describe this film it's just a wild ride oh it's definitely a wild ride and i I can see why people aren't i can see why not everyone is into it i think it's a great Mm -hmm. film it's not it's not at all conventional or it is a bit conventional but it mixes it up yeah absolutely and that's actually another trend i'm sorry i did forget one trend men are bad that was a trend last year that was a big trend yeah because we had men don't worry darling uh, Barbarian. There were there were some other ones too. Resurrection is another one. Okay, I didn't watch Resurrection. My number five. I'm kicking this off with a bit of controversy and a curveball. So <laughs> this is on everybody, almost everybody's list, and it's usually up there on their list. But for me, it's number five, and that is everything, everywhere, all at once. <gasps> I'm shocked. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody's like, somebody had their hand on the pause button right now. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Did he just say, wait, if that's number five, what are the other four? Mm-hmm. That's all I'm wondering. <laughs> yeah. So this, I, I, I love this film. Don't get me wrong. Like I said, this top five was hard for me because these films, I, the top five I love, but there's more films in here. And I'll talk about them during the honorable mentions that I also love. So I had to like not only look at love, but just look at how well the films were done and just kind of looking at the ones that I was building in my top five. This is the one where I think it had a part in it where it slowed down for me. Didn't really drag, but I thought that it started to spin its wheels. And I was like, all right, you guys could have cut this a little bit. I thought some fat could have been trimmed. 
on him. But this is a this is an excellent film. I know this is going to be on your list, Caitlin. So we'll talk about it some more. But this was, yeah, like you said, like this movie was a huge success and nobody saw it coming. They thought this movie was going to be really niche. But this movie has something for almost everybody in it. This movie mm-hmm, has great absolutely. performances, great set pieces, great action. When I was talking about writing and I mentioned the balance between the theme and the story itself, this is it. Because this movie has a very absurd story, but it has this deep theme about uh, motherhood, family, and love. And it actually it makes a very serious topic within a, a very serious topic that is also heartfelt within this absurd story. And I, I thought that was, that was amazing. And I really, yeah, I really enjoyed this film. Yeah, I agree. Like I went into that film thinking it was going to be very niche and then it, it wasn't. I think that this is a film that talked to a lot of people and that's why it did so well in theaters. So let's go ahead and get into one of our subcategories. I'm going to start with something a little positive. What was your biggest surprise of 2022? This was an easy one for me. It was Top Gun Maverick. If you listened to our original Top Gun episode, you knew that I was not a huge fan of the original Top Gun. Uh, I did go to see Maverick. I took my grandmother because the original Top Gun is one of her favorites. And I expected to feel, you know, about the same with Maverick as I did the original. But no, Top Gun Maverick was amazing. It was, like I said, I keep calling it a, a wild ride. But it was fun. It was a fun action movie that just kept you engaged. It kept on you on the edge of your seat. Uh, the performances and what went into those performances were were really interesting to see. And so I had a really good time with Top Gun Maverick. And I was I was so surprised by that. Yeah, that's, again, it's an easy one. It's hands down. It, it surprised everybody, even surprised mm-hmm. Paramount, how well this movie did. And yeah, the, the first movie, I don't think was that great. I don't think it was that well written. There weren't that many things in it. But this movie, it had all of that. It, it How much story and character it had in it is not what you expected to be a sequel to the first one, which lacked all of that. And again, writing, I think this was, as far as legacy sequels go, I think this was a good written legacy sequel as far as bringing in your legacy character and evolving them and evolving them in a way that you're not, you're not trying to play fan favoritism. Like you're Mm -hmm. actually trying to develop the character and then also still giving appropriate screen time and development to your side characters as well. It's probably my favorite legacy sequel that we've done so far. Yes, for me it is so far. Like as far as like, obviously we've had legacy sequels that I enjoyed from a personal point of view, like, you know, ones that we don't agree on, like Jurassic World and Halloween Kills, but like this or Halloween M, sorry, not Kills. Uh, But this one, I feel like I enjoyed it, but also it's just a good film. Yeah, this is, this is how, this is how legacy sequels not saying they all should be done this way and not all of them can be done this way, but this is a good example of how to do it. It avoids a lot of the cliches of them because this also a good thing about this is that it's not a requel. It doesn't feel like it's setting up. It doesn't feel like they're passing the torch Mm -hmm. off to somebody else. They just made a self-contained movie. Yes. All right. So we're happy. You know, we're, we're talking about things that we like and we love. Let's talk about some disappointment. What was your biggest disappointment uh, of last year in film? In film. If you want to share your personal experience, go ahead. 
Well, personally, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so this one was hard for me because, like I said, this year was a year of disappointments of films that just didn't live up to my expectations, directors that didn't live up to my expectations. So I kind of narrowed this down to two. Uh, I originally had it between men and the Northmen, but I think I'm going to give it to men uh, from Alex Garland. Robert Eggers as a director with the Northmen. The Lighthouse wasn't my favorite, so like I can't put him in the same level as I did Alex Garland. Alex Garland, of course, did uh, Ex Machina and Annihilation, which is obviously one of my favorite films. Uh, so when he came out with Men, you know, I was super excited. And yeah, I, I, I don't know what he was doing with that film. It's not awful. It definitely has a lot of body horror, but I feel like... The message and what he was trying to portray just got lost. And like I said, Barbarian did it better. There are a lot of films that did what he was trying to do in a better way. And it's honestly kind of a forgettable moment, except for that one body horror moment. And yeah, I just I was very disappointed with this director. And it's a shame. The Northman was one I thought about. But yeah, Robert Eggers, I just know from The Vavitch. And the I think there's... A- I think there's another one. I haven't seen The Lighthouse still. Hmm. But the the trailer is like what hyped it up for me so much. So that was the the only thing. And it was just, I don't know. I can't get the biggest disappointment to misleading trailers. Yeah. Like, there'd be so many. Men. So Alex Garland also, for those who don't know, he wrote 28 Days Later, which you haven't seen yet, Caitlin. Uh, so I, I was excited for this film because I, I like all those films. And he was directing this one, correct? Yes. Yes. And I don't know. I feel like he made what he wanted to make and I got things from it. I I just don't, I don't think it like, it was the great film that I was hoping it to be, but I don't think it was bad. And then when I was listening to a podcast about it and man, this is a movie that like you would bring to a book club and just Mm -hmm. really dive into because there's so much that I just didn't know. Like you would have to read into it. So I think there, I think the movie is actually better than, I like how I watched it, so I'll still give credit to it. But for me, my biggest disappointment, and this was really my number one anticipated film. Actually, it was between this and another one, but I'll talk about this one first. It's Don't Worry, Darling. Mm, So Olivia Wilde coming in from Booksmart, which I love Booksmart. You you love Booksmart too, right? Yes, I do. Yeah, we all love Booksmart. So Olivia Wilde, I was like, I want to see your next project. Because Booksmart not only was a great film, but it did new things with it. And I really liked the direction in it. So I wanted to see what more she could do. Also, you have Florence Pugh in this as well. Uh, That's an actress that everybody's loving right now. She is one of the hottest actresses right now. Both Mm -hmm. physically, but also like just (laughs) performance-wise. And then also Chris Pine in a serious role. Now, I'm not going to say everybody loves Chris Pine. And people have different... uh, different levels of appreciation for him he really is he's known for his blockbusters but i've one i do like him in blockbusters i think he's a great leading blockbuster man and that's like i'm actually looking forward to dungeons and dragons just because he's in there i don't care about anything else with the film but i've seen chris pine in a serious role hell or high water which is a film i I really like it's one of those films too that i didn't end up loving so i saw it a second time and seeing him in that and i saw him in another movie z for zachariah long time ago and I just, I wanted to see more from him in a, in a serious role, not in a blockbuster. I want to see him in a drama. And while he was great in this film, he was hardly used. And this film, 
thought about writing again. This film set out to be this surreal Black Mirror adventure. Well, not adventure. I'm going to say adventure. But this kind of capsule film that has this mystery tied to it. And it didn't deliver on that. And it was it was paced oddly. And when you really think about the movie, there are so many plot holes. So many plot holes. Mm-hmm. For anybody who's seen the film or watched the film, I want somebody to give me the answer as to what was up with that plane. Because it yeah. it has no it has nothing to do with the film. It just goes away. It doesn't. Oh, and then Florence Pugh, Caitlin, you said that you didn't enjoy her performance. I think she was good still, but it wasn't it wasn't like any of her other films. It wasn't Midsummer. No. The only performance I even somewhat liked in that film was Olivia Wilde herself. Maybe that was intentional. (laughs) Could be intentional. Could be intentional. And this is a movie that, man, you're wondering about the reveal. And the reveal, that that reveal just falls apart. Yeah, it was bad. Yeah, it feels like like they had a couple of good ideas, but they didn't know how to make it into a whole film, into a whole story. I feel like if they made a movie about the making of this movie... That would be better than the movie itself because there's so much drama going on and it just wasn't warranted with the film that was produced. Oh, yeah. that That's going to come in a couple of years later. Oh, absolutely. All right. Going back to... So we were disappointed in those films. Oh, wait. One more disappointment I have. And I was already falling out of the MCU, but this year, not just for me, but for a lot of people. And actually, they mm-hmm. started this year, 2023, with disappointment. Yeah. I think that was... Like, Black Panther, to me... I was debating as being the biggest disappointment and I wasn't even excited mm. for the movie. It was still disappointed. I also gotcha. saw, saw Thor love and thunder. I didn't see Dr. Strange. Like I'm, I'm honestly, I'm done with uh, Marvel. Like the only thing I want to see now is Loki season two, Shang-Chi and blade a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's, it's interesting. I don't know. I felt like, I mean, Kevin Feige said, everything's going to be all right. You know, we learned and then they released Ant-Man three. <laughs> Well, yeah, you should have probably saved those words till afterwards. Yeah. Uh, but I'm I'm not gonna say superhero fatigue. I I step away from that. I just have MCU fatigue because that's still still great superhero properties. I like my two of my favorite TV shows of last year were superhero films, and and there's still a lot that you can do with it. Uh, but MCU needs to step away from this formula or improve on it. Yeah, definitely. I definitely have MCU fatigue, and I'm not a big DC fan. Uh, but indie indie superhero stuff I'm still excited for. Obviously, we still have another season of Invincible coming out. Uh, I know I haven't caught up to the boys' latest season, but that, I've heard, was really good. So, like, there's definitely indie properties coming out with superheroes that I'm still interested in. It's just those two big players for me. It's just, it's just I'm done. <laughs> Now, you want to talk about writing. The Boys Season 3 does some of the best character writing I've seen in a season of a TV show. Like, as far as presenting a problem and able to close it within the season, but you can see how it'll still continue in the other seasons. Mm, okay. Well, let's go ahead and turn those frowns upside down. What movie actually lived up to the hype for you? Uh, I have two here, um, but I think I'm going to go with Nope for me. Nope was a film that I was really excited for, and I was excited as I was watching it. It was it was great. I really liked it. Dang, you just changed my answer because Nope did live up to my hype, especially when yeah, I watched it again. It, it did. Watched it the second time. It was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was about to say everything, everywhere, all at once, but 
my hype was like it came in very quick. Like I, I saw the trailer and then I was excited for the film, but with Nope, there was there was a lot more that I was hyped for. Just the the trailer, Jordan Peele, Daniel Kalua, uh, this alien invasion movie. There was a lot more hype that went into that for me. So I went in with yeah, caution I- because of us. Yeah, same. And I almost put everything everywhere as well. But then I think the most of the hype came after I saw it. And I personally wasn't super hyped for it like I was for Nope. So it didn't really have to live up to that hype like Nope did. But yeah, so I I was very happy because a lot of times I know we talked about this before. A lot of movies don't live up to my hype and or oftentimes they don't live up to the hype that I put it in my mind, especially if it's something that is getting a lot of buzz and when it does meet that hype it's just fantastic it's it's beautiful chef's kiss what film did you disagree with the critics most and this could go either way either you think it should have deserved a better score or a worse score i jokingly put texas chainsaw massacre 2022 on here (laughs) that was something i don't think either of us really agreed with the critics but i will not say that's a good film (laughs) i don't know that the critics are wrong or just that we were just done with that series (laughs) i'm still questioning that (laughs) it's it's yeah i'm questioning it um as far as ones that have gotten a lot of critical acclaim that i just wasn't a fan of i put x on there X was one that I've been seeing a lot of good stuff about. I still haven't seen Pearl. I know you saw Pearl. That's also getting even more acclaim than X did. But I'm just not I'm not excited to watch it. X is a film that brought up a lot of topics, but then just didn't really do enough with it for me to really enjoy it. X is the same film for me. That was the biggest disappointment. And actually, yeah, I, I did consider Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I don't think I disagree with the critics because it's not a good movie. I just still enjoyed it. And I didn't really enjoy it that much. Like, it's not going on the list that I mentioned quite often of movies that I think, movies that I had a lot of fun with that aren't necessarily good. It, it didn't reach that level for me. And again, I don't, I don't even know if that was a good movie or a bad movie because we had, you know, we, we were influenced. We, mm-hmm. we were biased by the time that we got to that film. But X, on the other hand, and X was, first off, you know my, like, my favorite set, setting for time periods it's it's the 70s so when you say a horror film set in the 70s like bam i'm in and this film and also like the the porn aspect to it as well something that we didn't really see in horror movies but yet we see a lot of that the perversion of the of the two of the murder and i guess you'll say sexual perversion we see that crossover Mm -hmm. a lot in horror films so this movie could have said a lot and it started to and then someone hit that clock and said, it's go time. And this just turned into one of the most mediocre slashers. It was also a shame to see Jenna Ortega in this, who was mm-hmm. doing great. And yeah. then nothing, nothing comes out of everything that they set up, which is where it's like, I could, can I say that I liked half this movie? No, because that half didn't go anywhere. I don't know how, but they killed a bunch of people and killed the first half of this movie. I will say the one thing I liked in X was Brittany Snow. I loved her character, but everything else, no. <laughs> uh, Brittany Snow was was good. I think Kit Cuddy did a good job as well. Mm-hmm, yeah, performance wise, they did decent. Everyone, yeah, performance wise. But aside from, I mean, Mia Goth, I guess was all right. But mm, Mia Goth yeah, and I didn't. Uh, old people makeup, I don't know, some total sweating crap. 
And you know that's like my pet peeve now is like when a character, an actor plays multiple characters and one's just like heavily made up. That's my 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 biggest pet peeve now in movies. <laughs> yes, and I mean it worked out because they did a prequel for this film, so it makes sense. But they didn't have that plan, so I'm not going to give them the credit. That was mm-hmm. a coincidence for them. And there's going to be a third movie, isn't there? Yeah, this is a trilogy, and I'll Ugh. talk about how I feel about that trilogy coming up. <laughs> because I'm going to talk about Pearl somewhere else. Okay. But yeah, again, great writing, and then they just threw it out. And you know what the worst part about it was? The kills weren't even great. No, they weren't. Like, they some were predictable, all. other ones just happened super quick. Which is weird, because it was Eli Roth, too, who... I haven't seen too many of his films, but he really... I heard that he's, like, really gory with his films. And yeah, this movie was mm. had some gore in it. But it was just like a bunch of blood. It wasn't creative kills in any way. No. There was more sex than gore in this film. Well, we know what perversion he leans more towards now. <laughs> Back to the top five. Caitlin, what is your number four film of the year? My number four film of the year is going to be Nope by Jordan Peele. I think that this is a film that surprised me in that it, like I said, it lived up to the hype, but not in the way I expected. It was a different film than what I expected, but I think I liked that even more. I think it's well-directed, and I think that while it starts out as a horror film, it turns into this, like, Spielbergian adventure film. And I just, like, was having a really fun time watching it. I really did have a good time. And the themes in here... While some people say it's a bit on the nose, I didn't feel that they were on the nose as I was watching it. And then when I looked more into it, I was able to appreciate the themes of spectacle a little bit more. And I just think it's a really good film. And for me, uh, when I'm ranking Jordan Peele movies, Nope and Get Out are ones that are almost tied for me. Us, of course, is, uh, you know, (laughs) the not so great one in the trilogy there, but it's really hard for me to decide between those two films. And so I, I really enjoyed Nope. I I did enjoy Nope. It didn't make my number four, at least. Did it make it higher? I don't know. Stick around. I definitely wouldn't say that it was close to Get Out. But again, I Get Out is really high up for me. Mm-hmm. But Nope did a lot of great things. Also, it introduced the first ever Akira bike slide in live action. And I just really liked, I don't know, like so, so much about the film is good in just a technical aspect like the whole the whole film is shot during daytime all the nice scenes are shot in daytime that's that's impressive Mm -hmm. in itself and also the trailer is part of this movie because the trailer subverts it it starts making you expecting things and even Mm -hmm. if you get this film correct as to what it is to what the threat is it still subverts that expectation because it goes in deeper than what it actually is i'm I'm also interested because someone was talking about like his next films and they were talking about the the five writing like the the five plots of writing man versus environment man versus self uh mm. man versus society and so far those films they've been kind of going uh not in the order but they've been knocking out so far they knocked out 3 out of 5 and Jordan Peele says something about like the the five plots so Maybe the fourth one is going to hit one of those that we haven't seen before. Hmm. That'll be interesting to see. For me, is it's going to be a horror film, and it's The Barbarian. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's on there. This this is the one that I was kind of switching back and forth with everything, everywhere, all at once. 
Uh, but this movie, man, this movie did not slow down for me. And I got so much from this horror movie just in intention and laughs and not knowing what to expect to anxiety, not just scares, anxiety. Like I walked out of this theater still just, you know, my blood's still kind of pumping. Uh, this this plays with a, a lot of different types of horror as well. There's, there just isn't one type to this. And there is a, a change in the story. And you kind of wonder like why it's doing this. And it says a lot. And it, it says, a, a, and it plays into the story. It's not like I wanted to say this. And again, this is another horror movie that's directed by a comedian. This is one of the whitest kids you know. Uh, and no, I'm not talking about like you personally knowing the whitest person. <laughs> all right. Uh, don't give him a call. I'm like, hey, man, I didn't know that you directed The Barbarian. But uh, the the skit uh, show, I forget, I think it was on IFC and another channel. That, he's part of that cast. And again, it's another comedian who really uses horror. And and he actually, this is a movie that he was working on for a while and that he was trying to sell. And people weren't, a lot of people weren't buying it. I think he spent like a couple of years trying to sell this movie. I know he spent a couple of years writing this film. He went through a lot of changes as as far as what he wanted to do with it. But he just got a, I think a six figure deal for his next movie, as as far as I think the budget I think is uh yeah six figures, no my bad not six figures because that's like a hundred fifty million it could be, I think it was like uh five five figure. I think his next movie is gonna be starring Rooney Mara from what I saw I I remember seeing the uh, premise and thinking it was interesting but I can't remember what it is off the top of my head but that was just announced recently. Okay, let's see what he does. Another horror director that. We're going to be watching. Mm-hmm. So for these next categories, we're going to get a bit emotional. We're, we're going to explore movies. They aren't just a spectacle that some would say. Sometimes they pull emotions from us more than just more than just joy. Sometimes they pull anger. And for me, there's always one film. It never ceases. <laughs> there's always one film that I go on a rant with. And by the way, my uh, Devin... He goes on rants now, the rookie. <laughs> like, I'm so proud when he just starts going on a rant. But, Caitlin, what was the movie that made you angry? What movie did you have to rant about? For me, it was Ticket to Paradise. And that's a rom-com with Julia Roberts and George Clooney. And it also has Caitlin Dever in it. So it has a really good cast. And I heard a lot of people saying, oh, this is the return to the true 90s rom-com. It has a blooper reel at the end. It's It's great. And the plot for this, our two parents are really trying to stop the wedding of their daughter to a man she just met on vacation in Bali. The daughter just graduated college. She went to Bali on vacation. And while there, she met uh, a native person from Bali. She falls in love with him and decides they're going to get married. So this is like within three months. She decides she's going to move to Bali. She's going to give up her career and that's what she's going to do. And so her parents come and they try to break up this relationship. And they're shown as the the irrational ones. They're the ones that aren't letting <clears throat> true love conquer. And for me, I just got so irritated because this is such an outdated kind of story. Like I was for the parents. Like, please don't marry this person that you just met two months ago. Please don't give up your entire life and career for this person. But we're supposed to believe that true love conquers. And it I just made me so mad, that whole plot line. And I just expected it to have like some kind of switch up to unravel and it never did. And 
you know, instead we're supposed to just believe that Julia Roberts and George Clooney, two people who do have amazing chemistry together, but just it wasn't shown in this film. And so it was just a complete movie that just had a ridiculous plot for me. And it was a complete waste of talent. Uh, Caitlin Dever, I've seen two movies of her this past year that just don't do her justice as a comedy actor. I want to see so much more for her. She deserves so much more as an actress. And please stop taking these movies, Caitlin Dever. I'm begging you. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm not going to question if that was the movie that made you the angriest. That... There was a lot of energy. Like, it just started building up. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't know you felt that strongly about the movie. I know you say you didn't like some things with it. I didn't know that they were trying to sabotage the relationship, which just seems like a very churlish thing to do. Well, I mean, it's her parents. They're doing the right thing. If my child was like, hey, I'm going to move to Bali, give up my entire life, career, education to meet this, go marry this guy I just met. Like, I would try to sabotage it, too. Like, they were in the right <laughs> But but when you say sabotage, were they doing hijinks? I mean, it's a comedy. It's a romantic comedy. There's, of course, some hijinks. Uh, but it's mostly about them because they're parents that are divorced uh, and they don't get along with each other. So this is kind of bringing them together. So it's also them coming back together. And so they're the real main focus of the romantic tension here. So, you know, there was uh, a lot going on. A lot of hijinks, but also a lot of stuff between those two characters. But like I said, it was a waste because while these are two actors that have chemistry, it was just a wasted plotline for them. That's a shame, too, because I think I'm in the minority, somewhat in the minority. I think I'm in the minority when it comes to cinephile and film snobs. I like George Clooney, and I think George Clooney and Julia Roberts, I mean, they're two very charming people. So I thought they would have some mm-hmm. good chemistry, but I guess with the divorce, uh, that would be kind of a little bit harder to portray. And Caitlin Deaver, I... You know, that's an actress that I've been watching for a while and, and wanting to see more projects with her. Still hoping for Last of Us Season 2. That's not going to happen. They already, they're definitely going with Bella Ramsey. I don't know. I think nobody will question it. But it's already confirmed that Bella Ramsey's returning for Season 2. I don't see it. Not for not for. I don't the see it either. Two. I'm not happy with it, but it's happening. All right. Now, this one shouldn't come as a surprise. Or you could flip a coin. If you follow our show, if you follow our legacy sequels, at least, it it comes down to two films. And I was actually, I was trying to figure out which one I wanted to put in which category. And there has been something that I've, there's a question that I've been asking repeatedly, never received the answer for. And that is, is it a musical or not? I knew this was going to be it. (laughs) I can't answer the question, Brian. I don't know if it's a musical or not. (laughs) Nobody would know the question. I could probably ask the people that worked on this film. They said, Pinocchio? What? There was a Pinocchio remake? Because nobody tried in this film. And, man, this is a film that I wasn't initially angry with until I watched the original and realized that they literally copied and pasted the screenplay. Not in just, again, dialogue. There was literally set pieces and movements from the characters that they put into the screenplay. And yet... They still decided to add things to it. Oh, well, Brian, did they add things to approve upon the movie? You know, maybe a little bit of extra background story on Geppetto now that you got the the fame of Tom Hanks behind it. No, they decided to add in some stupid jokes. And I know I'm not the only one because I hear people complain about the same joke when they're like, oh, the boy's made of pine. Maybe we should give him a name, Chris Pine. No, <laughs> no, you should be ashamed of yourself. And I don't, when it comes to bad movies, like, 
it's, it's a person's creation. It's, it's a person's piece of art. I don't want to go too hard into it. But if you're going to be lazy and you're just going to completely waste my time and I can see that you made no artistic effort into it, then no, I'm going into the film. All right. And this film just, it doesn't know what it wants to do. It just knows that it wants to do Pinocchio, the wooden boy who looks just like horrible CGI. Tom Hanks holding Pinocchio. Look at that again. It is, it is awful. They spent no time mm-hmm. on this film. And when it comes to the whole, the whole musical thing, like, all right, so the blue fairy starts singing her song, but then that, that's actually a good sequence, but then she goes away and it, it's like a verse. So that, that's the part that started confusing me. And then they would just talk some of the song lyrics like, hey, you remember that? You remember that song? Yeah, I do, because you're literally making a remake of the movie. Nobody's forgot that remake, even though it came out in the 40s. I mean, the, the, the original Pinocchio. And then all of a sudden, Luke Evans or whatever, I don't even know why he's so big, but he just burst out in song at some point, and it was jarring. Like, it comes like an it hour was. in the film. It was film. very jarring. This film, man, this... Again, the the audacity to just copy and paste a script and then <laughs> add nonsense to it. And they like they put Tom Hanks in it. This year made me question Tom Hanks, by the way. Might as well mention it now with Elvis. Tom Hanks was awful in Elvis. That was one of the worst performances. That was that was such an embarrassing performance. No, I want to say embarrassing. I don't know, like, because embarrassing is personal. But I'll just say, man, that was like a questioning performance. I was like, is he actually a good actor? And then this as well, you have a big director behind it. And I don't know why. It's weird. They get these big directors to make these remakes because this is Disney. But yet they get these small directors to direct the blockbusters. Yeah. And then you so you have the small time directors being worked way too hard. And then you have these uh, big time directors who are put on these projects and told, eh, don't worry about it. Just show up to set and make sure the place doesn't burn down, basically. Yep. I was going to be upset if this wasn't your choice for Miss Category, to be honest. And and like I said, we are talking about the Disney remake, not the Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio that also came out this year. Or the Pinocchio with Pauly Shore. Though I heard that <laughs> was bad, too. I keep forgetting there's three Pinocchios that came out last year. That's crazy. That is That was a trend of last year. One we missed. But, uh, yeah, this, well, it, it was close to another film. And when we get to that category, I'll tell you why it didn't make it to that category. And why the other one didn't make it to this category of making me angry. Okay. Well, actually, that film made me angry, too. This just made me angrier. The angriest. (laughs) But, uh, okay, let's, uh, let's calm down, Caitlin. What, (laughs) what made you laugh this year? What, what was the big laugh you had? The film that made me laugh was Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. That movie, while it didn't fully live up to my expectations of what I wanted that movie to be, Rachel Seno and Lee Pace in that film were absolute gems. They were a gift. I think the upper middle class line is probably one of the best line deliveries of this century. It's memorable. It's hilarious. I think that they just took this film and they completely just made it their own. They they stood out so much in this film, particularly Rachel Seno, which I'm so happy to see more and more of her. She looks like she's going to have a good year this year as well. Uh, last year, she was in one of my top films, Shiva Baby, and that's how I was really introduced to her. But she is a comedian, and, you know, she works. I This film was hilarious to me. I give it that. She was hilarious in that movie, and you liked that movie a lot more than I did. I didn't care for that movie, to be honest. Mm. Also, that's like, another Rich People Sucks movie. T- 
It is. It is. That's true. It, it didn't live up to my expectations of how good I wanted it to be, but it still, it really did make me laugh. And a large part of it, like I said, is because of her. The film that made me laugh was The Menu. The Menu is where I got the biggest laughs, like laugh out louds from. I don't think I laughed once in The Menu. <laughs> it, it worked for another me. Another disappointment for me. That was another disappointment for me, but I'm glad it worked for you. And it seems to work for a lot of people. When this hit streaming, it became even bigger. And I, I, but also, Devin the Rookie, he he didn't really care for this film too much. So I think you guys mm-hmm. will probably agree uh, on your opinions of that. But the menu, it worked for me. And this is like a movie that I, I can quote in this movie. I want to, you know, once I want to take a break from movies for a little bit, do my Thursday watches. But once getting back into it, this is a movie that I'll definitely show people uh, for years to come and movie that i just i just found hilarious uh just the, Actually, the situations mm-hmm. go ahead sorry. i did lie i did laugh at the student loan comment and i think there might have been a couple times with nicholas holt but i did laugh yeah but it, it's, it's not even just the lines like the there's some visual gags in there that they do one particularly with nicholas holt the whole situation is it's just absurd and becomes hilarious even though it's a bit well not a bit it, it's completely dark uh, there's something they did with Nicholas Holt that was just hilarious. There's a whole scene devoted just to him. And th- this just hit me in, in multiple ways, the way they, that we're playing with this film. I do think that we are seeing a lot more absurdity in films. That was another trend that I've noticed. Between this and everything, everywhere, all at once, and how well they're doing, yeah. It's probably something we'll and see trial more. trial of sadness, too, I think, even. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I didn't watch that film. You told me not to. It didn't, it didn't yeah, look good. Yeah, I wasn't good. a fan. <laughs> it looked like one of those films that, it looked like the Titan of this year. Like, everybody's saying it good. it's mm. good. It won great at the festivals, but it's not that great of a movie. God dang, Titan, man. That was, that yeah. was bad. All right, break the tissues out now. Get into the last emotion here. What's a film that made you cry? There were a couple of films this year that made me cry. Uh, for the sake of this category, I'm going to say After Sun. After Sun is a very touching movie uh, about a father and daughter on vacation. And there is a sequence that is particularly sad and happy at the same time that has the song Under Pressure playing. And I don't know if I can listen to Under Pressure anymore without crying and thinking about that scene. So that's that's the film for me. Have we talked about how that scene reminds me so much of they just haven't seen it? it? It does. It does remind me a lot of that. I don't think we talked about that, but it does. Yeah, if you guys have time for a music video, you should watch They Just Haven't Seen It by San Holo. And that mm-hmm. mo- uh, that music video is is great and it's, it's very emotional. Like, actually, listen to the words and watch the video. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's a... It's a very interesting music video, and it says a lot within those uh, less than four minutes. But the film that made me cry, it it was between two on this one. And because there's a film that almost had me bawling. Like, my natural instinct, like, I didn't cry because my natural instinct was to cut it off. Like, just, you know, toxic masculinity, whatever you want to call it. If I feel that that emotion coming, like, my body would say, whoa, no, gotta stop this. Can't do it. Uh, and that was the fallout. Now this isn't, I'm not going to use this as my, my pick for the category. There is another movie, but the fallout is about a school shooting. And I actually, I watched this, I guess you can say timely or mistimely. 
I watched this not far after the Buffalo shooting. And before the Buffalo shooting, there was another mass shooting. And I've never like had relation, like personal relation to these mass shootings. I never known anyone to be involved in it, but, and I, and I never like, when I hear about it, it's not like I get super sad and depressed. Like I'm upset that I'm really upset to hear it. And I wish something uh, would be done like anything, but watching this and like thinking about how this is actually, this has really happened. We're not even seeing the school shooting. We're seeing the children in the bathroom hiding and hearing the the shots go off and hearing the screaming of children. God dang, actually, I just got chills right now. I'm not. I'm not. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not even trying to be dramatic. I, I just got. I just got it thinking about it again. It is. It's rough. It is so it is. rough. It is. And and there's and the movie continues on from that, and it really goes into something I don't think many people have been talking about, which is the the PTSD, the post traumatic stress disorder, or the post uh, the post trauma that comes to these victims of these mass shootings whether they were actually whether they were actually injured during the time or not but just being within vicinity of it and there were some scenes in here that mm-hmm. we're, we're following Jenna Ortega and you know you can tell that she's holding some back and god dang hold up Ugh. just think <laughs> about that just think about that scene again there, there's something that her sister asked her and I think like having siblings as well, being able to relate to that, it, it kind of, it hit me a little harder. Actually, no, I don't know. This probably is my number one pick. Cause actually now that I'm talking about it, I haven't, I haven't yeah. talked about it in a while. It, it really is getting to me. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating here, but, but the one that I put down was after sun. So I think mm-hmm. the film that made me cry, I would say, or, or was about to make me cry was the fallout. But the film that really hit me emotionally and stuck with me was after sun and it's it's a very it, it bounces through emotions and it's, it's very subtle but it's, it's a great depiction of of mental illness and somebody trying to fight it while still trying to support as well trying to be that support trying to be that example of joy and it's it's a tough watch but it, it keeps you going throughout it and man at first you don't even really notice it and and this is where I think writing was really good as just kind of with the structure of this story. And I'll talk a little bit more about it later. But this is, yeah, this this hit me hard. And once it was once it was over, this one I did tear up a little bit. Because tears, mm-hmm. like a little bit of tearing up, that's fine. My body's not like, hey, we got to cut this off. Like, no, it's okay. Let that one drop. Yeah, it, it's, I don't want to spoil too much with this movie. You got to watch it. The father-daughter relationship, it, it's, you know, I don't I don't have kids of my own. But that, that made it, it, it still was a hard thing to see and it was hard to see that that struggle that was being portrayed in the movie yeah i think the thing with after sun for me too is that there's this sense of sad nostalgia to it and you're watching like home videos that were taken at the time during this vacation period and for me like this i watched this at a time where i had been watching a lot of home videos that my grandfather put on my grandfather had made before um, he's he's passed away now, but when he was younger, he made a lot of home videos of us. And so watching those and then watching this and be reminded of that feeling of having that kind of nostalgia for something was was very 
heartbreaking and heartwarming at the same time. So I definitely agree with After Sun. As far as the fallout goes, the thing that got me for that movie is also the idea that trauma doesn't necessarily have to be productive. I think a lot of times, you know, from an outside perspective, hearing about these school shootings, you hear more about the activism that comes out after a school shooting uh, a lot of the, I know a lot of victims from previous school shootings have come out and become activists and big gun control uh, speakers against, or speakers for gun control. So the characters in this film, they're not that. They're not trying to do anything productive with their trauma. They're just feeling it. And I think for me, that was so sad to see and so sad in a way that the trauma felt more real so I definitely agree the fallout's a film that it's not making my top five but it's definitely a film that you should check out and check out when you have uh the emotional capacity to do it yes it's it's hard to recommend this to people especially people with children but this I would say this is probably the most important film to watch and as far as like because film can can have impact we talk about it all the time on the show and I think that this one like I said, I didn't know that I had such like deep uh, emotional perspective to this until I actually watched this film and and saw this actually acted out. But with um, a common theme with the after sign and the fallout is both watching somebody struggle alone with what they're dealing with, and and that's hard to watch. And it's kind of mm-hmm. like you want to scream at the screen to to help them out. So let's go ahead, wipe our eyes. And so about a little something that we both enjoy, Caitlin, you and I, we both enjoy writing. We both respect a good screenplay. I've been talking about it this whole time with writing. What was your best screenplay? I kind of uh, put this into two separate categories. Overall, best screenplay is going to go for everything, everywhere, all at once. It was completely original. It covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time. I mean, it's a longer movie, but there's so much plot in the beginning that is kind of thrown upon you but it doesn't linger too long to really make it doesn't hinder the screenplay at all and just the originality in this and the themes that they tackle I thought it was brilliant and completely original and I can't even imagine having the mind to make something like this I am in complete awe of it because I, I just don't feel like I'll ever make something that good But and then the other side, I also wanted to give a shout out to Tar for its dialogue in particular. Uh, Something when I was reviewing this film, I said it's a masterclass in dialogue. And what I mean by that is that every conversation here is an example of power dynamics. Uh, There's power dynamics in every single piece of dialogue in this film. And it's clear to see and there's a lot of musical jargon that's going along in this dialogue that you don't ever feel like you're swamped down by it. But I think that this is something that every screenwriter should be learning from. Tar did have some fantastic dialogue. There, mm-hmm. there are scenes of interviews that I was like, man, this one feels like an actual interview. But at the same time, I'm just enthralled by it. Yeah. Everything Everywhere All at Once was also a, a great story. Uh, like I said, I think they could have trimmed it up a bit. But for me, it is going to be After Sun. And the biggest thing with After Sun is that it also taught me something, which I, of course, appreciate being a writer. And that is a way to structure a story. We see a lot of times, you know, you have the 
the conventional rise, rise and fall of action is a climax. And then we also sometimes see a slow burn. Movie is really, again, it's, it's, it's moving slowly, has a very low tone. We get to that climax and everything blows up. Uh, we have mysteries where the whole time we're, we're wondering what's going on. We have the, the suspense building and then we get up to that moment where it pops. This felt more like a development. The best way I can explain this movie and the structure is that you're watching somebody with a piece of clay, like a blank piece of clay, and they're structuring it out. And you're you're just watching them with it. It's not a slow burn. Like it's a it it doesn't exactly have an even tone. It has a curve in its tone. But that's like as you're watching the statue being formed in this film. And I thought that was just amazing, especially for a small film as well. And I think it works better for a small and personal film such as this. Also, what they did with the relationship with uh, the father and daughter the situations that they put her in it this movie just felt so genuine like they didn't even need the home video thing because it the, the whole thing feels like something i would actually see on a home video this film knew when to pull you in and when to hold back there was never direct answers it just showed you what it wanted to show you and it left you to make your own inferences from there and i think that was the beauty of the screenplay there was one little bit of dialogue that ruined this for me from being the best screenplay ever but it's it's minor it's very minor there's the cliche that oh if you look up at the moon we're both standing under the same moon there was that cliche and i was like no why like because if you got rid of that for me it would have been the perfect screenplay it coming from a child i understood I can see a child saying that. So for me, it's fine. If he, if the adult said that, like, come on, bro. Gene started to say that. So I was on a trip to, in Ecuador. Uh, and it was like, I was talking to my boyfriend. My boyfriend looked up. I was like, oh, look at the moon. It's the same moon that we see back home. And I'm like, no, stop. <laughs> stop I it. I said, yeah, and I'm leaving you under the same moon. <laughs> so every time you look up like, in the night nice sky, uh, remember the dumb thing you said. Yep. That's like the one thing that just like it gets it grinds my gears. No, I didn't. When I think it came from an appropriate character. The other thing yeah. that I respect with this movie, uh, so I have a lot of uh, interaction with uh, those with uh, mental illness and depression, like uh, just experience uh, with it. And I'm still uh, not being in law enforcement anymore. I still have some interaction doing volunteer work, and this showed. A lot of symptoms that I don't think are are portrayed in too many uh, too many films or TV shows mm. when it comes to depression. It's not just about somebody being sad and you see them going into this spiral. It has a lot of ups and downs in his behavior. There's mm-hmm. uh, symptoms that are very subtle, like impulsive buying, drinking, because they both show show like a healthy way of drinking in the movie and like an unhealthy way, and it's. Again, it's subtle. It's not crazy. It's not like uh like this blackout rampage. There there's some there's some pieces of dialogue that is said that you would hear from a person who is depressed or may not know they're depressed and just experiencing just experiencing the symptoms and not knowing what is going on with them. And I respect that for this film because again, you're bringing in a medium in a way you're teaching people to look out for these things. I think also an alternative sense of self-harm and what that can look like as well. Yeah, yes. Um, with uh, self-destruction and how, again, self-destruction can be 
subtle. We see a lot of movies with alcoholics, um, like to Leslie. You know, we see a lot of that self-destructiveness, but it's obvious. Like mm-hmm. it's it's overt. And which which does happen. We definitely we know those individuals. We've seen those individuals that like, oh man, you're definitely on the wrong uh wrong path. But we also saw or we've also seen people who are on a dark path or a self-destructive path that are hiding it very well. Yep, definitely. Yeah, so I, I not only think this is a fantastic screenplay, I just I have a lot of respect for it. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And this was directed by this the, the writer is the director as well, and this was her first feature film. What is her name again? Charlotte Wells. Yep, Charlotte Wells. As fans of screenplays and writing, we are also fan of the visual aspect of film. We're both fans of great cinematography to include the director of photography, which I don't know is just because I'm more aware of the director of photography now, but I feel like I've been seeing that word more often. Mm-hmm. But Caitlin, what is your what would you say had the best cinematography? So just to kind of sidebar a little bit, uh, cinematography is a thing that it has to progress the film. I think a lot of times in, especially in award season, we see a lot of cinematography that is beautiful. A lot of composition that's beautiful, good lighting, all of that, but it doesn't necessarily do much for the film itself there's a film that came out last year called athena that i heard lots of good things it follows a riot uh during police brutality in not in the u.s i forget what country it's in but the cinematography was absolutely beautiful it was absolutely beautiful but what it added to the story wasn't much and it made me confused about what the film was trying to say it just didn't work with the film it didn't work with the script and it was disappointing so for me when I'm looking for cinematography like that's what I need it to do I need it to really add to the script to the story it needs to be uh contribute to that to the overall film itself instead of being its own thing apart from that and for me Bardo was the cinematography that really just worked from a storytelling aspect and it shocked me when I was watching this because I was uh, I was convinced when I saw the trailer for this movie that the cinematography was by Emmanuel Lubinensky or Chivo the Goat. He's one of my favorite cinematographers. He works with Alejandro Inaritu very often and he has a very distinct visual style. But when I looked up the cinematographer, this the cinematographer was actually uh, Daniel Jimenez Cacho. Oh, sorry, no, that run. That's the actor. Reset. The cinematographer for this was Darius Conji. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, but that for me is a good example of where the director's visual style works with the cinematographer to create something that is wholly his own vision because it just it it really did surprise me and it's beautiful the thing that these two the director and the director of photography were able to work together on it's beautiful visually but it also just works for the story there's a lot of camera movements here that add to the sense of surrealism that the film is trying to to show there's a lot of slow pushes and movements that 
other filmmakers would have probably kept stable, but that's not the filmmaker that we have for this film. And the wide lenses that were chosen, there's a warping of the lenses, which a lot of times photographers and directors of photographers try to not have. And when they're choosing wide lenses for certain shots, they don't want to have that warping. But this purposely had warping in its lenses to just show that... (sighs) The narrative is supposed to be unreliable. It's supposed to be surreal. And it's just that choice was so wonderful to me because it was a film that wanted you to know it was a film and it wanted to have this sort of uh, style that it wanted to give across. And everything that went into doing that was just amazing. The lighting was great. There was warm moments in the cool moments. And it, it just worked for the family story that was being told. I I was absolutely in love with the cinematography here. Like, I can't speak enough on it. From what I've seen with the film, the cinematography does look great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, that's one thing I am looking forward to with the movie. I am going to give the Best Cinematography Award to All Quiet on the Western Front. This is, for those who don't know, because it's a war movie. I think some people have, a lot of people have heard the novel All Quiet on the Western Front. This is, I think, the third adaption of it. But when you talk about the ability to create a story through the use of the cameras, I think this really, I think it does it as well. Or at least it really enhances the tone. Because this is a beautiful movie, but it's also a very dirty film. Like, Hmm. it's just, there's grime and grit to it. And the, the cinematography helps capture that, both focusing in on the characters and then uh, zooming out and showing the, the battlefield or the trenches or the group of individuals that are sitting right there. Uh, and another thing that I think helps, helps with this is the color grading that goes into the film and just being able to see like these kids covered in mud and their sharp blue eyes piercing through it. And the way that the cinematography is able to linger on that and move alongside it is just very, very well done. And I think it it helps out the tone a lot for this film. And as always, it's one of those that there are many scenes that I can pause it and put that picture up on my wall. Now, how does it compare to 1917? I would say it's hard because it's two different types. Also, before uh, before I go further, the the one who directed, I mean, the director of photography for this film is James Friend or Frien. I don't know. It's German, I think. And then Roger Deakins did 1917. I, I like I would compliment I would compliment both films for doing something different. Roger Deakins he does a basically the movie's done in two takes. There's there's a break at one point when a character goes unconscious and it picks up and the movie just does not break. But I think when kind of with any film that is doing that one take is very personal is very focused on them and you see the scene as they're moving so there really isn't a, so always a need to back out and show it all because you're about you're going to see it all you see it as it's progressing I, I would say like as far as like stopping the shot and putting the picture on my wall I'll give it to all quiet on the western front like to really showing that the uh, the battles and the aftermath and also the the characters them themselves and picturing them, I would give it to All Quiet on the Western Front. Okay, because you have made that comment before with 1917, that exact same word for word. 
if I want to set up a screenshot and frame it and put it on my wall. You have said that exact word for word for 1917. That's why I was asking. Yeah, but I guess I guess with this, it's more so. And I guess this kind of increased my standard as far as looking at war movies. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of, I don't know, like for this, it felt different with the shots that they were they were able to get. I, okay. I feel like, we, you know, with the war movies, we see the, the usual typical shots. But with this, showing a lot of the the character and then showing a lot of the uh the battlefield and the backgrounds and also again with that tone like there was a lot of different tones that they were going back and forth with with the cinematography enhancing it on a technical aspect i give it to roger deakins for 1917 and be able to move the camera in the way he does to do those tracing and those one shots mm-hmm. okay and for our number three film of the year caitlin what is it going to be well, I just talked a lot about the cinematography, but I'm going to talk about it again because Bardo, uh, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths by Alejandro Inaritu, that's going to be my number three pick. And this is a film that it, it's kind of personal in a way. I feel like I had somewhat of a personal connection to this being coming from a Mexican heritage, coming from a heritage of Mexican immigrants this story did speak to me but this film in general is one of those director self-insert stories and it's one that was not very well reviewed and i've said before i i I think that there is a lot of almost i don't i don't want to say it's racism but it kind of is racism because we've seen a lot of acclaim for movies like the fablemans for telling spielberg's point of view But now that when we have a movie that talks about particularly the immigrant experience, Bardo being uh, a liminal space in Buddhist theology and being put in this film as a way to describe the liminal spaces that immigrants take up in this film. Now that we have a story where the director is talking about that and his experiences there as being an immigrant and being Mexican-American somehow this is self-indulgent i don't i don't think so so for me this is this is a wonderful film i had i have so many notes on this film i think of all the films that i watched this is the one that i had so much to say and so many thoughts after watching this i just i looked up interviews i just kept wanting to learn more about the point of view that was being told here and it answered a lot of my questions that i had as someone who appreciates mexican cinema who appreciates directors like Alejandro Inarritu, Alfonso Cuaron, uh, Gambo de Vittorio, and you have a big three that come in and they come from Mexican cinema where they have limited opportunities and they come and make movies in the U.S. where obviously there's more opportunities but the expectation about the type of movies that they're allowed to make is different. They're making more American-friendly films, they're making movies with more white actors, And it kind of seems like they're forgetting their roots. And this is a film that addresses that concern. It addresses a lot of concern. It addresses concerns about how uh, liberal media view Mexican cinema and the fears that these directors have that they don't want to lose their roots, but they also need to do what's best for them. So it's a lot about filmmaking. It's a lot of indirectly. We follow a journalist in this, uh, a journalist and a documentarian in this particular movie, but it definitely is a self-insert for Inaritu himself. Uh, there's a lot to say about immigration. There's a lot to say about privilege. 
and the way that these directors were brought up in privilege um because they were they're not they're different than what your average immigrant coming to the country from Mexico looks like and there's some reckoning there that Inaritu is uh, you know he owns that he recognizes that privilege and he discusses that and he discusses uh, the liminal spaces that third generation Americans feel um, as far as not quite understanding the place that they have not quite understanding the love for where they come from and their heritage and having some actual real points about the way that's viewed and that was something that I personally you know I had thoughts on and, and so there was just a lot of things that were going on in this film that Inaritu is tackling and it's a lot it's a long movie it's a three and a half hour no not three and a half it's a three hour movie uh it's longer it takes up your time and it takes up your attention but it still has this sense of cohesiveness and at the center of it all is a beautiful family story you're following this family and it, it it is really a very surreal movie. It talks about personal issues as far as fatherhood. It, it's just a really lovely movie that I feel like I could just go on and on and talk about all day. And I'm not going to do that here, obviously, but it, it really meant a lot to me. Uh, the way you talk about it, I'm surprised it's not higher on your list. I, yeah, I regret even more now not having watched it before this show. Um, maybe it would have made my top five. Who knows? I was also interested to engage in the discussion of how it compares to the critic reviews and is it self-indulgent mm -hmm. uh, and is it could it be a race thing? I know with this, it seems like there's more of a more of like a technical experimentation. The way you said like the lens was warped mm -hmm. uh, from some of the scenes that I saw. I know Steven Spielberg, his movie, it seems more like a period piece, which is which is more f uh, favorable to critics. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is definitely very surreal. I mean, it's a it's a Mexican movie. And one thing that Mexico is known for is that sense of magical realism and absurdity and surrealism. Um, and that's definitely present here. So it's it's not always I mean, I think it's still a very accessible movie, but I think that could be off putting to some but like I said, the main uh, criticisms that I saw was that it was self-indulgent and that the director is too much in this movie. It's too personal and I can't relate to it. And I'm like, well, not every movie has to be relatable to every person. And I think that's the main disconnect here that I saw. And I think that was a little disheartwarming to hear, too, because I watch movies all the time that I don't connect to as a person. It doesn't mean I don't like the movie or I think that the director is a hack. So I, I, I don't know. It, it just gave me a really bad feeling when I was reading some of the criticisms for it. Yeah, I don't understand that either saying you're, you feel disconnected. I know we talked about that before. I'm trying to remember what movie. Critics also said the same thing about Turning Red. Oh, which yeah. Which also came out this year. Yeah. Which, yeah, they also, yeah, that was a quote from one of the critics was, I can't relate to a 12-year-old Asian girl. Mm -hmm. What? So wait, you're telling me every other movie you've seen you've been able to relate to? Yeah. Like every, every other movie. You're telling me you're related to Iron Man? <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous. you tell me you're related to Puss in Boots? A Cat in Boots? And maybe this is just a really niche movie. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I mean, as someone who, I mean, obviously I'm not, I'm a third fourth gen something like that i was born in the u.s i can't relate to everything that's here but i can have a respect to it my number three film of the year is decision to leave okay 
I I really enjoyed this movie. Of course, it's my number three. The direction for a while this is one was one of my favorite directed films. There's mm-hmm. it's not surreal. I don't know really how to describe it. It's it has a way of like visually portraying like there's like an overlay on it too to just give more of a depiction of what's going on especially in the way that they show so this is a this is a crime movie you know this is a noir film the way that they reenact the the scenes of the offense it's it is great and it it does it so seamlessly but it almost it almost feels like uh almost feels like a storybook in some way also, I just I just like the the story throughout. It was it was very interesting watching these characters interact, especially seeing their motivations. And you, the mystery is like one portion of it, and it's interesting to see how that develops. But it's also just it, it's it's very um, it's very enjoyable watching the the two leads continue to interact, and you kind of wondering this whole time like is there manipulation being involved? What is their motivation for all of this? Uh, yeah, I, I really did enjoy this movie. It's also a great looking film. The it is. Yeah, the uh, I don't know what, what what you would call it. It just looks has a great color to it. It looks very sharp. Mm-hmm. Color grading. This was actually my uh, would have been my second choice for cinematography. Yeah, yeah, I can. Yeah, I can see that. There, there's a lot of good things with it. And the shots, I mean, there's some creative shots in here. Uh, the transitions in particular also just blew me away for this film. And it works towards the story. Like I said, there's some cinematography that's just there to be pretty and doesn't really do much else other than that. But this this worked towards telling the story. So we both agree this has been a great year for horror. And because of that, I've gone ahead or we've gone ahead and added two categories to this. Now, the best horror... You know, it's, it's going to show up in our list, what we think the best horror is. So first question is, Caitlin, what was the scariest horror movie for you? Or were they all like you just looked at them stone cold in the eyes, in the dark, like just, just facing it head on, didn't jump once? Uh, Yeah, so horror movies don't often scare me. I think honestly to date, the movie that probably scared me the most wasn't even a horror movie it was Annihilation but there was a movie this year that did come out and actually did scare me and I already talked about it in my top five and that was Barbarian uh particularly uh the first third of that movie there is a moment where uh, the use of space and light and lack of light is just so excellently done uh, that it was it was terrifying <laughs> it was honestly terrifying and also there were moments like I said but this is a film that talks about issues against women uh, fears that women have and some of that got to me as well in this film so I definitely think this is probably one of the more scarier horror movies that I've I've ever seen honestly I Almost agree. It's not it's not the scariest film for me, but it was the one I was debating heavily. The only reason I didn't put it on there is because well this film it has a break in it and it's just it's not a, a scary film, but there is a film that just kept me kept getting me. Uh The Barbarian also I, I would give it credit, like that was the film that I walked out and you know, I was I was still kinda still had some anxiety going on. Especially <laughs> with I think for me the the scariest thing for me is the dark. 
And so, yeah, yeah with that, that, the way they play with the dark in that film, oh, it, it got me a couple times. But there's a film, and I watched this at home. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I scream more at home because I'm, like, in private. <laughs> I, and I try not to at the theater. But I think The Barbarian would have got me a couple times if I was home. You've seen it. You've seen me jump before sometimes. I don't think I've ever screamed yeah. in your presence. No, I don't think so. Yeah, quick side story. The one film that really got me was Wreck, uh, Record. Really? And yeah, you were you were there. Or I thought you were there. No, I wasn't there that day. Oh, yeah. We, I haven't um, seen Wreck. Yeah, that was the perfect lineup. Oh, is that on the Shameless? That should be. Yeah, so we actually, a part got me. And I jumped. I jumped hard. But we had to rewind the film because somebody just got back in. And that part happened again. And it was only like <laughs> a minute gotcha. had passed. And I jumped again. <laughs> uh, now, the film that did scare me, which I wonder if there's a coincidence because there is a certain action that I have a hard time producing that a lot of people know me for or known that I have a lack of, and that's to smile. And <laughs> the movie Smile, it got me. It got really? me so bad. Oh, I really? Okay. I think I made a screen like three times hard in this movie, which I'm kind of glad for because I was... So I was kind of doing, I've been doing like a comedic scream, especially like if I'm playing the game and I'm getting mm -hmm. hunted down by somebody, I'll do like a comedic scream just to be funny. But I think it, I was worried that it was starting to turn to my real scream, which I didn't <laughs> want to happen. But no, watching this, my, my real scream came out. Really? Yeah, there was some, they got me bad. I was literally checking my peripherals while watching this film and afterwards as well. Huh. And I, yeah, I even like kind of, put myself in like a defensive position after one jump scare and kind of stayed like that for the movie when I started feeling those those scenes coming back up this yeah this movie this movie got me bad interesting yeah so smile didn't really get me I wasn't really I don't think I was very influenced too much by it so that that does surprise me it waits a while for the first jump scare and I think mm -hmm. it's like Steven Spielberg said the first jump scare is going to be the scariest after that you know, you you are you are kind of capped out with it, and yeah, the first one got me bad, but it it just kept coming, and I w I was on edge during this whole film, even things that I knew was about to happen, mm. I was still jumped. See, I'm I'm very sensitive to jump scares, but I also don't necessarily count them as true scares for me. What? Because it's more of like a shock, you know, it's more of just like a shock, but it's not actually scary. Oh, no, I think like the build up to it is the scary part and then it shocks you. But it's not always like it can be like someone closing a door and I'm like, ah, because it's just like sudden. It just shocks you. But I'm not like it's obviously I knew it was coming. and I'm not really scared by it. It's just it's loud and it's shocking. Or the non loud one from the night house. That one got me and then it, I knew it was going to get either you or Coleman. <laughs> Yeah. But I, I think this does well with the jump scares. It doesn't do too many. It's creative with the ones it does. Mm -hmm. And it also, yeah. the movie builds this distrust of people throughout the film. So you're always on edge. Yeah, that's true. Unfortunately, in this film, I, you know, this would have been one of the better ones, but I don't like the way this film ended. I don't want to get too much into yeah. it, but I, I think Smile was, it was better than I thought it was going to be. I thought this movie was going to be stupid when I saw the trailer. I was like, mm -hmm. this This looks dumb. It was. It was better than I expected, but yeah, the ending kind of ruined it for me. It was almost disrespectful. Yeah. <laughs> and our next horror category is going to be, well, we've already said our best. That was the Barbarian. What was the worst for you? Uh, For me, it was The Invitation. Not 
the amazing movie The Invitation from 2017, but this year's The Invitation, which is a vampire story, uh, there's just not a lot to it. It's very predictable. It it's just it just wasn't a good movie, and it's another one that I think got hyped up for me because a lot of people were telling me this was a really great movie, and it was not. So yeah, The Invitation. You need better people. I don't yeah. even. Was that one that you tried to tell me was a well-reviewed movie? And I said, nah. Uh, I don't remember if it was well-reviewed or not. No, it was like people I knew were telling me it was really good. But it was also, but I also like was hesitant because the same people were telling me that this was a really good movie were also telling me that Barbarian was bad. So I was like, I don't really trust this, but I'll watch it. Oh, no, I would have I would have discredited that immediately. But I also like saw some good reviews online. I don't think it's like super heavy critical review, but I did hear some good things. So it was, I don't know, a little disappointing. Well, I heard great things about this movie and its predecessor. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I just missed something the first time. Maybe there's <laughs> something that the director was really trying to say. And maybe I'll see it in this second film and I can join everybody for this great film. And we can hold hands as we walk into the final installment of this trilogy. No, let my hand go. I ain't going into that theater. This is another trilogy that I will not be concluding. I'm putting it on the list. There are several trilogies. The Hobbit is one of them where I'm like, no, nah, I'm not I'm not finishing it. I don't care. The first one was bad. The second one was worse. Pearl. I, I what did I give this on my letterbox? Because I may want to lower remember. it down now. This movie and this movie has this movie says a lot. It actually has a really good theme that it says and man would it have been interesting if it wasn't just in a five minute monologue and they actually portrayed it in the film <laughs> this whole thing about her being an outcast and feeling like she's different from other people i'm like oh man let's let's really explore that no she just says it here and there and then she goes to a monologue whole time listen to a monologue i'm saying wow this is a great performance from mia goth and this is also this would make for a really good story because that that's it like, I feel like that's what they showed to the producers. And they said, oh, that's what that's what you're going to do? Okay, well, you got Mia Goss. She's doing great in this monologue. And you got a great story that you want to tell. No. God, uh, Mia Goff just goes from, it's like the director's telling her, like, hey, you're going to be, like, real nice and quiet. And then you're just going to throw a tantrum. She goes mm. zero from 100. There's no, the only time there's a good balance is that monologue. Other than that, she is screaming. She is screaming so yeah. hard. And, yeah, bravo for you giving... You're all out. I probably think that's more the director and and unable to like find a medium or just let in their, you know, they, people think more is better. No, it just, it becomes ridiculous. And there is, there, God, there is some faulty writing in this. There's some, somebody makes a lie in this movie, right? And then a minute later, they get asked about the lie and they say, what are you talking about? Like they get caught in their lie that they made just a minute ago. Like no time has passed. It hasn't been a couple days. It was literally one scene to the next scene. Mm. And 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 they gave them a second chance. They were like, "Well, remember you told me this? No, I never told you that." Unless like in another script, that person has short-term memory loss. This makes no sense. And then <laughs> I, I'm, I, this this may spoil it a little bit. There's a whole horrible horror trope in here where somebody's running away from a killer. And they're not sprinting like they should be. I'm not saying you got to cut the wind like Tom Cruise, but pick it up a bit. All right. And 
she's like slowly running, realizes she's in danger, calling for help, and then trips and rolls her ankle, and the and the killer catches up. No, I mean, you, you did not Cliche. just say Eli Roth. Aren't you like a like a horror? You know, you're known to be one of the the horror icons. Like you're known for for doing this, and you you're gonna go ahead and do that. And don't you dare come to me and say it's a homage. No, like uh, this movie. <laughs> I wanted to watch it because I kept seeing so much hype for it. And I was like, okay, maybe it's going to be better than X. Maybe I just need to give it a chance. But then I kept seeing clips from it from Mia Goth's performance. And I'm like, this isn't a very good performance. Like, maybe it's just because it's out of context. But this isn't looking really good. And then I heard your thoughts on it. And I was like, all right, I'm not going to prioritize this film anymore. I'm not in any rush to watch this because I know I'm not going to like it. And... Mia Goff is a an actress that I've liked her as a side actor for a while. Like she's been in some stuff, and she seems pretty good as a side actress. But is she not a leading lady material? Like, is this just bad directing? Uh, I know you saw her in Infinity Pool, correct? Like, is it is no, it Devin her did. or is it director? Oh, okay, so you're not really sure. Yeah, this I think is the director okay. because somebody could tell her to tone it down, and I think she could tone it down mm-hmm. but i think it's, it's one of those where everybody's having fun i think this was a movie that everybody's having fun because during this time they were trapped in australia because of the pandemic they couldn't move that's why they made this film mm-hmm. they had extra time they still had the set i'll give them credit on that they had they had the old set and they made it look like a period piece also god dang i forgot about this going back to writing so they like a lot of films were doing kind of making a pandemic film this movie mm-hmm. uses that, and it's cool at first because, like, World War II is going on. They're saying that there's an illness being spread around the city, and there's a lot of, like, comparisons that could be made to the current pandemic, and they have to go out in town and wear a mask. If they bring anything from outside, don't bring it inside because it, it could have germs in it. I'm like, oh, man, that's, wow, what a nice and subtle way to do that. That's, that's you know, bravo on you for... Not really social commentary, but social awareness. And Eli Ross said, what's that word you just use? Uh, subtlety? Mm-hmm. Never heard of it. By the way, uh, <laughs> I'm going to go over here and, uh, hey, Brian, what's that over there? What? And then I turn back around and he just smacks me with, God dang. There's a part where one of the characters just say, yeah, it's so hard to see people's faces with these masks on. And mm-hmm. they say something about missing to go out and like how it has something to do. It, it, it tried to make social commentary, but just kept swinging it over the head. Gotcha. I didn't realize how angry I was about that movie. That's another contestant. <laughs> I feel like I'm angry about that movie and I haven't even seen it yet. <laughs> That's another audacity. You're making a trilogy out of it. The audacity. And that will conclude the part one of the 2023 Brass Magnifier Awards brought to you by Operation Silver Screen. And fortunately, we do not have the audacity to make you wait another week or another month to see part two. We're actually going to have that coming to you in two days time on Thursday. Also, just a quick couple admin notes with this. One, uh, we decided to actually call this the Brass Magnifier Awards. I know you heard Golden Magnifier Awards earlier. That's because actually at the time we didn't think of that as a title. Caitlin just made a a joke that actually turned out to be an awesome title. And then we used Brass because, well, everybody's doing Golden and Brass fits more with our theme. Another thing is I, Bryant, have personally decided to question myself as to whether or not everything, everywhere, all at once belongs in the number three spot while Decision to Leave belongs in the number five spot. And when you get talking 
about these things and you're expressing them and you're discussing with another person, your opinions start to change a little bit. But I'll go ahead and let you guys know that in the beginning of part two. So don't wait. The suspense uh, will hopefully not kill you. Hope you've been enjoying the show so far. We have more fun subcategories and our number two and number one best watches of last year along with our honorable mentions. Until then, if you agree with this show, if you disagree, if you want to give us your feedback, if you want to you know, let us know how we compare to the other war shows out there, you can reach us on our social media, which is going to be on Facebook, Operation Silverscreen, Twitter and Instagram at OpSilverScreen. You can also see what we've been reviewing and giving these movies as far as star, star ratings and the actual review. You can look at us on our letterboxes. You can also see what movies we've been talking about, what movies we haven't mentioned. Our letterbox, Caitlin's, is going to be at Coffee Spoon Kate. That's C-A-I-T. And then you can find me at Swank Seal, capital S, capital S. So, till part two, I'm Bryant. See you.